Parshat Ve'ishlach uh, is really the conclusion of the Yaakov narrative. Uh, and Ve'ishlach is chiefly about Yaakov and contentiousness, because it starts with Yaakov's anticipated meeting with Esav, and then the reunion. Uh, but it, it, the anticipation is of a lot of uh, tension and uh, pre- preparation for massacre. Then there's, of course, the story of uh, of Shechem, the city of Shechem, uh, which is obviously a great, a terrible confrontation. And then Yaakov comes in confrontation with his own mortality um, as part of the promise to have a child born. So with that, Rachel dies. And you can almost sense the air coming, kind of coming out of Yaakov. And the text kind of does that because almost immediately after that story and after the story of Ruven and Bilha, um, there is a long piece, which itself is a little indecipherable as to why it's there, which is a, a listing of the genealogy of Esau, to which the obvious question is, who cares? Um, and then it follows with what is rightfully called the story of Yosef. From the beginning of Ayeshev till the end of Breshit, Yosef center stage. And Yaakov has not off the stage like Yitzchak was when Yaakov left, but Yaakov is side stage. So um, Yaakov's last great moment, in the sense of heroic moment, in the sense of a powerful moment, is in the story that we're going to read here. Doesn't mean that Yaakov doesn't do amazing, great things afterwards, but the the power of the vision that happened at Beit El at the beginning of Ayetse is replicated and perhaps even the bar is raised with this particular scene and that is of course the scene of Yaakov and the man wrestling in the middle of the night. This is such a mysterious narrative and, and again the, the, the cardinal rule of how you find out whether a text is easy to understand or not is look at me Kudolot. If you see a lot of text and very little commentary, it's a fairly straightforward narrative. If on the other end you see the opposite, then you know it is opaque, mysterious, uh, esoteric. And you look at the Mikrogdolot on this passage, and in some volumes, uh, each pasuk takes two pages, and the rest of the page is just filled with commentary. We're going to look at four different approaches to the story of the wrestling match, and we're going to see four different takes. And these are by no means the, this by no means represents the full panoply of approaches, but it is, it is perhaps uh, um, exemplary or indicative of the mystery of it and the way that different people looked at the story. But one thing I want to bring out here, because we often quote Mifarshim in our Shirim, is to note that Mifarshim approach a text with a preconceived direction. Nobody looks at a text blank. Everybody comes to it with a set of assumptions and a set of interests and desires of what they're trying to do with the text, what they're trying to see in the text, what they're trying to pull out of the text. And that will play out. We won't be able to decipher all of that because we don't know enough of, of each of the of the people, but we'll I'll make some suggestions along the way. Okay, what I presented here was the entire narrative uh, in the original, which starts in the beginning of Parshat Vayishlach. Uh, and the part that's in small print is really the preparation of Yaakov's meeting with Esav. This is absolutely germane to the main story that we're going to look at. So I had to put it here. 
but it's something we're going to focus on. So I put it in small print. Um, and I didn't put the translation for this part. Yaakov is returning to Israel. On his way back, he sends a message to Esav. Now, how he knows that Esav's even interested in his arrival, we don't know. And basically, hands over the bracha to Esav, if you look at it. Throughout this, these, the words that Yaakov sends through his messengers to Esav, he consistently refers to himself as Avdecha, your servant. And he consistently refers to Esav as Adoni, my master. And he gives him lots of stuff. He sends lots of stuff. And he even refers to that stuff later on in the next chapter as bracha. I'm sending you a bracha, a gift. And the clear sense of this is that Yaakov is essentially taking back or giving back the bracha that he took from Esau. And I've been with Lavan all these years. That's why I couldn't come see you. Now I come back and now I'm handing it back over. I am your Eved. You are the Adon. I worship you. I bow to you. I don't worship you, but I, I serve you. I bow to you. You are the master. And here is the bracha. I'm giving it back to you. And Yaakov doesn't know what, what's awaiting him. He thinks that Esau's still angry. Esau's going to try to kill him. He's trying to appease Esau and even says that. In the end, it turns out to be a very nice reunion, uh, which is uh, a temporary one, and then they go their separate ways. Now, a strange thing happens here. In Pasuk Chafbet, we'll start, we'll pick up from there. So remember, Yaakov sent this huge gift. In previous years, we've talked about the nature of that gift, why those particular five kinds of animals, why in that order, why it's in separate groups, each one was a message to Esav. But the gift passes in front of him. And Yaakov sleeps in the camp. So the picture you get at this point is, that there is a camp that is north of the Abok River. The Abok River, the Abok Wadi, is, is, uh, goes on a northeast uh, line out of the Arden. Yaakov is on the northern side of it. Esav is south of it. And he sends the gift to start their march to come to Esav. And then Yaakov sleeps that night in the camp. We figure he's going to spend the night. But he gets up in the middle of the night. This is all bizarre. He takes his four wives, basically. Interesting, 11 sons. It doesn't mention Dina. There's 11 children, but there is a 12th, that's Dina. And now he crosses Mavayabok. Now, it's important to note, Mavayabok is, is a wadi, which means it means hiking down and then hiking up to the other side. And he crosses Ma'avayabok with all of them in the middle of the night. Is a man who's in his advanced 90s doing this. There must be some good reason he's doing this at night. When it's treacherous, it's very hard to see. So he takes them, he crosses the wadi, and he takes all of his own stuff. So he's moving the whole camp at night, seemingly under cover of darkness. Very odd. And then, Vayivater Yaakov Levado, famous line, Yaakov is left all alone. Now, what does all alone mean? Does all alone mean no people? Does it mean no animals? Does it mean no stuff? We know it means no people. Maybe he has stuff with him, maybe not. Vayavek ish imo ad alotashachar. Now, part of the question, is, of course, is why is Yaakov there alone? Because after all, if his whole journey here is to move people across, there shouldn't be no point at which he's alone. 
unless it's on its way back to get the next person. But this seems to be the end of the journey. So it's a little, already there's a mystery built in. What's he doing there alone? So Chazal had their solution that Yaakov went back to get a few last items that he had left, Pakim Tanim, uh, and, uh, and so he was all alone with only these things, okay? But he's all alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere. A man comes and wrestles with him, literally hugs him and grabs him until dawn, which means that from whatever point in the night this is happening until dawn, Yaakov and this unknown man are wrestling. Now, who is the guy and what does the guy want? Does the guy want to mug Yaakov and take his stuff? Does the guy want to hurt Yaakov? and 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 kill perhaps kill him none of it makes much sense especially if Yaakov is all alone meaning without his stuff then mugging him doesn't make sense you're not getting much out of him this guy like a highway robber if killing him why does he want to kill him who is this guy so the questions are clearly rampant here and the big questions now he wrestles with him till morning why does he wrestle into morning because something we're going to next hear about what happens at dawn? Or is it because that's how long they wrestled and then something else happened? We don't know. Let's find out. Vayar kiloyacholo. Now, as if this text were not opaque enough, the uh, undefined pronouns here make it even more confusing. He saw that he could not best him. Who saw that who couldn't best whom? I mean, there's basically two options. The Ish saw that he could not best Yaakov, or Yaakov saw that he could not best the Ish. So he touched, or literally touched, the socket of his thigh. So now, who's touching the socket of whose thigh? That we get because, and Yaakov's thigh gets out of joint as they're wrestling. Okay. It's because he's wrestling with him, which means the guy who pulled the socket is the Ish. Well, that we get. But now, who is it who saw that he couldn't best whom? So the simple read of it is, and I think it's the only, only way to read it, is the Ish saw that he could not best Yaakov. So he turned to this kind of dirty fighting tactic, and he wrenched his, his sciatic nerve. Now, Vayomer Shalcheni. And then he said, let me go. Now, who's saying let me go? And you're saying either way you play it, this is weird. If it's Yaakov saying let me go, then why is he saying it now? Why didn't he say it at the beginning? The guy attacks you, you say let me go. Shalcheni ki And then he says, let me go because dawn is risen. So if it's Yaakov saying it, what is dawn rising up to it? And why didn't he say it at the beginning? If on the other hand, it's the other guy, why is he saying, let me go? You attack me. Why should I let you go? And what does Dawn have to do with anything? You understand mystery wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in an enigma, all wrapped inside of a puzzle. So he said to him, again, we don't know who's saying to whom, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Now, let's think about what this means. If the guy is talking to Yaakov and saying, um, I won't let you go unless you bless me, 
then I kind of understand Yaakov's a holy man. People bless him. But if it's Yaakov who says to the guy, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me, why would you want a bracha from somebody who's been attacking you all night? What does that mean? Do you understand how the mystery continues to deepen? Now, we don't know who's asking whom for a minute, but we will. Because he says to him, what's your name? And now we'll find out. And the answer is Yaakov. So now let's trace it backwards. The Ish says to Yaakov, what's your name? And he answers Yaakov. Right? And then he goes and makes a comment about Yaakov. So it sounds like the, the Yaakov was saying to the man, give me a bracha. And so, and, and so the man says, what's your name? It's Yaakov. Okay, so the man is the one who's asked to give the bracha. Which means, he said, let me go because dawn has come. And he says, I won't let you go unless you give me a bracha. means Yaakov is refusing to let him go, which means it's the man who wants to leave. So again, how bizarre is this? The man attacks Yaakov somewhere in the middle of the night. They wrestle all night. And then the attacker says to Yaakov, let me go, which means, by the way, Yaakov isn't just defending himself. He's also holding on because it's dawn. And Yaakov says, I won't let you go without a bracha. Now, what does dawn have to do with anything? Why do I, why does he have to leave because it's dawn? What kind of bracha does Yaakov want from a mugger? What does that mean? So I think the simple pshat in Kim Berachtani is uncle. I think it's the simplest meaning of it. I will not let you go until you admit that I beat you. Okay. Instead, the guy says, um, So for the bracha, I'm going to do a little midrash shem, a little play on your, on your name. What's your name? Your name is Yaakov. Okay. Your name will no longer be called Yaakov. Kim Yisrael. He's not saying I'm changing your name. He says it will no longer be called Yaakov, rather Yisrael. Why? You have wrestled with, or you have stood nobly with Elohim and men, and you have held your own. Batuchal is again goes back to Pasukhavav, Kiloyacholo, right? Um uh is his inability to best him. You have bested. Elohim and Anashim. What's he referring to? And now you're Yaakov, you ought to be wondering, how does this guy know anything about me? He didn't even know my name. So yeah, he asked me my name. Now I tell him my name and he says, ooh, your name's going to be Israel because you've bested Elohim and Anashim and you've held your own. What does that mean? Right? Yes. No, hold on. Let me just finish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. By Yaakov, so now Yaakov then asks him and says, All right, you told me your name. I, you t- I, I told you my name. You told me your name. And the guy says, Why do you want to know my name? Which is a pretty good point. I mean, I get, we've been wrestling all night. I told you my name. You tell me your name. I have a good reason. Why do you want to know my name? Now, remember, Yaakov said, Give me a blessing. The guy turns around and says, What's your name? Yaakov. You won't be Yaakov, it'll become Yisrael because da 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 da. And then he says, What's your name? And the guy says, You don't want to know my name. I'm not going to tell. Why are you asking? And he gives him a bracha, which means the Yaakov Yisrael thing was not the bracha. <clears throat> so that means there was something else that he said. We don't know what it is. Now, what does Yaakov do? By Yaakov Shem Makom Piniel. 
Yaakov now renames the place or names an unnamed place. And he names it Peniel. By the way, this is the third place that Yaakov is given a name to. And all three of them are named based on encounters with angels. Betel, Machanayim, and now Peniel. Peniel, why does he call it Peniel? Hira'iti Elohim Panim El Panim. I have seen Elohim, I'm not going to translate it, face to face, Peniel, Peniel, and I was saved. I didn't die. All right. And the end of it is, the sun comes up, as he was passing Penuel, and now he's limping. He's limping because his, his thing got pulled. All right. And then we have the Isur of Gidan that follows it. The questions here are just all over the place. And instead of doing what we normally do, which is try to go through them and give one a single answer to the whole piece, we're going to look at it through the eyes of four different Mepharshim. Jason, you had a question. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify when, oh, wait, go back when you scrolled, when it said first that you should bless me, the angel continues or the man continues, so it's the same person speaking both times? No. Now becomes Yaakov saying, I won't let you go unless you bless me. So the man says, what's your oh, name? Oh, okay, okay. I know I was getting confused. All right, good. Okay. So let's take a look at it. We're going to start with Rashi. Everybody knows Rashi. Rashi's famous, but we should see Rashi. Rashi says, and you always start with Rashi. Vayavek. Rashi commenting on the rest of it. Who's the guy who's wrestling with Yaakov? He's not a man. He is an angel. And what angel he is? Is he? He is the angelic manifestation of Esau, or the angelic representative of Esau, Saroshal Esau, which means what we have here is a divine being who is a bad guy and who's trying to hurt Yaakov because he's representing Esau, which means that in this scenario, Esau wants to kill Yaakov. And so now that Yaakov's all alone in the middle of the night, his angelic representative is coming to beat Esau himself to the punch and get Yaakov right now and defeat him. Okay? That's the way Rashi looks at it. Okay, so a little bit further on, and again, this is just a sketch of Rashi, but it's enough to get the picture. When the guy says, and now it's the guy, the angel who says, I have to go because dawn has come. So he says, because I'm an angel and I have to sing to God. And we only sing to God during the day. Now, this is part of a whole complex, a very difficult uh, angelological, angelological, sorry, and that is a word, uh, notions um, for us to deal with, which is the fact that the angels sing to God, but they only sing to God during the day, day we're, and why is that? And I mean, the time zone issue is a little bit of an issue. And besides that, one other thing, the, according, within the world of angelology, there is a notion that Malachim have one day in their existence that they sing to God. And when they're finished, they poof, they disappear. That happened to be this guy's day. So you want to tell me why you picked the night before your big day to go and attack Yaakov and then say, whoops, I'm late for my one time in, my, in history. It's a little bit lame, okay? And lame is a, is a pun here. All right, so now, next piece in Rashi. Yaakov says, I won't let you go ki'im berachtani. Now watch what happens in Rashi. There's something, there's something overt and there's something covert too. Hodali al 
He's saying, Berachtani means I want you to admit and acknowledge that the brachot that Father gave me are really mine. She'esav ma'erelem, because your Esav is challenging them. Now, the, the covert piece to this Rashi is, that means that Yaakov now knows who he's dealing with. Meaning, he recognizes the guy's wrestling with him. Oh, this is Esav's divine representative. So I'm going to, you're going to act on behalf of Esav to try to kill me. Now that I've bested you, I'm going to force you to act on behalf of Esav and admit that the brachot are mine. Now, the difficulty in this approach is built into the text because throughout the text, Yaakov keeps both here and after this acting as if he is the servant and Esav is the superior and he's handing the brachot back to Esav. So it's very difficult. But this is the way Rashi reads it. So that means that what this is is a precursor to the anticipated battle between Yaakov and Esau, that in Yaakov's head is going to be confrontational, adversarial, and belligerent. And so that now happens in the middle of the night with this angelic being that's representing Esau, and Yaakov now talks to him like he talked to Esau. Admit that it's mine. So what does the guy say back? Your name won't be Yaakov, meaning, lo ye amer od shabrachot No more will people say that you got the brachot through trickery. Trickery, hairy arms, I'm Esav. Here, Father, eat the food. But rather, they'll now say you got the brachot straight up and clearly, which, by the way, he can't say because it never happened. He never did get the brachot clearly. So that's Rashi's take. And Rashi's take is that this battle in the middle of the night is a battle between the forces of Esav and the real Yaakov. Now, how much of this has to do, and I'm just going to throw out a little hint, how much of this has to do with where and when Rashi lived and what was going on in Rashi's life. Rashi, as you may know, died in 1105. Uh, in 1105. And he witnessed the First Crusade. And he was very aware of and had things going on in his life having to do with Brutality, Christian brutality, and if you remember that in the Midrashic world, Esav becomes Rome and then becomes the church. And so Esav and Yaakov are playing out in the fields of France right now. He's watching. So how much of that is informing his approach? Just something to think about. This is Rashi. Now, Rashi is not a darshan, meaning Rashi's self-appointed approach and self-directed approach to Parshanut is Pshat. I want to explain Pshat, what the text means. But Rashi's use of Pshat is different than others. And what he means by Pshat. <clears throat> and that means it includes those quote-unquote mainstream Midrashic explanations and tropes that exist in the tradition. And Rashi adopts that. And in this case, certainly they did Sarah Rashi, as you know, had an illustrious pair of grandsons, Rashbam and his young brother, Rabbeinu Tam. Rashbam wrote a commentary on Chumash, and the Rashbam's commentary on Chumash is absolutely devoted to Pshutosh Shomikra, meaning linguistically and contextually to make sure that what he's interpreting is fitting the, the interpretation, the straight interpretation of the text. And so the Rashbam takes a whole different take on this whole thing. It is a, a mind-blowing Rashbam which often the Rashbam is mind-blowing. He says the following, I'll only read the parts that I made large because we can't read the whole thing. 
Remember I asked you at the beginning, why did Yaakov get up in the middle of the night while he's sending the gift in shifts uh, to Esav? Why does he get up in the middle of the night and start crossing the riverbed? So the Rashbam says, He was trying to run away. He was trying to avoid the confrontation with Esav. That's why he crossed at night. If you look here, why was Yaakov alone? Right, because he brought everything across. He was trying to run away so Esav wouldn't encounter him. Now watch this. Who encounters him? A Malach. By the way, all the Mepharshim that I've seen agree that the person who encountered him is a Malach. And we see it in the end because what does Yaakov say about his encounter? I saw Elohim panim al panim. The Malach seems to know things about his life that a guy in the middle of the night wouldn't know. The Malach does properly foretell that his name will be changed to Yisrael, which it is later in this parasha. So we all agree it's a Malach, but a Malach is not a Malach. There's different kinds. Watch what the Rashbam says. Malach imo, meaning a, an angel wrestled with him. Shelo yuchal livroach. Why did the angel wrestle with him? So he couldn't run away. Why? So that he should see the fulfillment of God's promise that Esau wouldn't hurt him. In other words, this malach is a malach sent by God. It's not a representative of any evil force. This is a malach sent by God. And he's sent by God to keep Yaakov in place so that Yaakov can't run away, but Yaakov should stand there and watch that God's promise will become, was fulfilled, that he won't be hurt by Esau. Right? And so that's why the malach says, let me go because Allah has shachar. Right down here. Now that it's light, you can go. Go ahead, Yaakov. It's fine. In other words, he's holding off until dawn because at dawn, you 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 can't run away anymore. It's light. Right? Wasn't he crossing this, the uh, book to where Asav was? So how does... Yeah, so the geography is a little bit odd. Right? Because you would think that the Abok, he's running, he's going perhaps west and intending to cross the Ardain and go into the other side of the Ardain, maybe. Right? It's a, it's a, the geography is a little odd here. Right? Remember, the Rashbam's in France. The cartography is not great in those days. Right? So then he says as follows. So why was Yaakov lame? We understand according to Rashi why Yaakov was lame because... Esau's representative was able to make that much damage. But if this Malach's job is only to keep Yaakov in place, why is Yaakov lame? Yaakov should just be held in place, and then that's it. The Rashbam says the laming was a punishment to, to, to Yaakov for his lack of faith. He, God promised him all the way back when he had that encounter in Beit El with the Sulam. God promised him, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to bring you back. And now that he hears Esau is coming, he's scared. Why are you scared? I promised you I'd take care of you. Running away. Why are you running away? I promised you I'd protect you. You know what? I'm going to lame you as a punishment. That's the Rosh Bum. Very powerful. So far, two very different approaches. And now we go to the Radak. Rabdavid Kimchi, from the famous Kimchi family of Spain that moved to Provence. The Kimchi family, so famous, the phrase goes, Imen Kimchi and Torah, can't have Torah without the Kimchi family. And the most famous of them is Rav David Kimchi uh, in Provence in the 1300s, uh, 13th century. 
And he says the following. He says, starts out like the Rashbam. It's a malach. And he brings proof that the word ish is used for malach in different places, notably from Yoshua and the famous passage from, from Daniel and Aish Gabriel. Right? And he explains why they are. And here, watch what he says. <clears throat> Either you see them that way in a vision or awake. Why did Hashem send the Malach? So that Yaakov would gain confidence and not be afraid of Esav. He saw the angel wouldn't be able to beat him. That's why the Malach wasn't able to beat him. You think a Malach can't beat any human being? God says beat him, he'll beat him. He didn't beat him because the Malach was told, don't pull, so pull some punches. Don't beat him. And so that Yaakov will see that just like he can hold his own against you, Cain Esav lo yuchalo. Esav also won't be able to beat him. In other words, according to the Radak, the Malach's job was to give Yaakov confidence that he'll be able to stand up to Esav. It's not Rashi who says this is representing Esav trying to kill him. This is not the Rashbam who says this is a Malach Hashem who's there to stop him and keep him in place so he can see the Yeshua. This is the Radak saying, that the Malach was sent there to let Yaakov see his own strength. And this is something that, as teachers, we're familiar with very comfortably. When a student says, I can't do it, and we give them an exercise, and they do it, and they say, see, you could do it. I'm going to give you a challenge, and then you're going to see you could do it. And now, stop with the lack of confidence. You see, you can do it. And that's what happens here. Right? And then, he even points out, he says, that the reason this happens at night, and again, the problem, the issue of alota shacha, why, why does he say I have to go because it's morning? Because the symbolism is trouble is always compared in Tanakh to nighttime. And the breaking of dawn is always a symbol of redemption, of, of, a, of the light at the end of the tunnel. He said, so Yaakov is getting the hint that this trouble with Esau will only be until the dawn, and then there'll be a redemption afterwards. Right? And then the Radak has to address the issue, which is, why is he lame? Right? So he said, right? And he says something similar to the Rashbam, that he was lamed in order to remind him that he was not being, he was not, Accepted, fully accepting of the promises or fully faithful to the promises that God had given him. There's another point that the, the Radak here makes, which is not germane to our discussion, but it's just so it's significant in another way. And he says uh, here, It is possible that this entire thing never happened in the physical world, that it was all a vision. The Radak here is taking a page from the Rambam. Remember the Rambam, we've seen him a number of times, who says that any encounter with a Malach, by definition, is a prophecy, and any prophecy you have, unless your last name is Brabenu and your first initial is M, is a dream. Which is why the Rambam says the three men visiting Abraham at the tent is a dream. He says this event was a dream. He says Bilam's vision, all a dream. Meaning he's in bed having this vision. He says, so it's possible it's in a vision. In which case, if it's a vision, then why is he limping? He's limping. God put the limp in him so he would be aware that this is a real message. 
Okay, which brings us to the Ramban. Now, the Ramban in Breshit is, is all sheer by itself. It's all semester by itself. But the Ramban, <clears throat> important to note, states his programmatic position about Breshit already in Parakut Bet, in the beginning of the Avraham story, and he, he re- returns to it over and over and over. The Ramban takes a phrase of Chazal, which is Maaseh Avot Siman Labanim, very popular phrase. The actions of the forefathers are a sign for the children, and he expands it in a new direction. The way it's conventionally understood is that what the Avot did teaches lessons. Maaseh Avot Siman Labanim, we should learn from them. Very nice. The Ramban expands it powerfully, and I'll give you the first example of it. He says, when, and, he, and he states it as a programmatic statement, let me tell you what's happening in all these stories of the Avot. He says, when Avraham goes down to Egypt, which, by the way, the Ramban says was not okay. He goes down to Egypt. He ends up with his wife being taken into Paro's palace. Paro gets plagued. Avraham becomes enriched. Avraham is then sent back, richer, back to his home, very rich, back to his home, back to Eretz Canaan. This is what's going to happen to his children. His children will go down to Egypt because of a famine. They will have terrible trouble there. God will send plagues and they'll come back rich. In other words, in the Ramban's world is not, we learn lessons from the Avot only, but it is that they blaze a trail that we end up following. They create patterns that we end up following. Keep that in mind as you see this Ramban, which will blow you away. This is the Ramban's comment on the Malach fighting with him. The, the, the Malach couldn't beat him. And so the Ramban immediately quotes a pasuk from Tehillim. Malachim are all powerful and they do what God says. They're all powerful, but they do what God says. Therefore, the Malach couldn't hurt him because God said you can't hurt him. The only thing Malach was allowed to do by God was to keep him in place, to wrestle with him, and to hurt his, his thigh. So he quotes Midrash Rabbah that says, What did the Malach do when he yanked the thigh? He actually hurt all the, say, all the saints that are going to emanate from Yaakov. That's referring to the era of persecution, which in Chazal means the Hadrianic persecutions of the fourth decade of the second century after Bar Kokhba. Here we go. This is the Ramban. Rashi would never say this. The Radak would certainly never say this. The Rashbam wouldn't think of saying this. This is the Ramban. This is a hint for generations. She Yaakov. There will be a generation in Yaakov's children. Yitgaber Esav Aleim. Esav will overtake them. We have to remember in Midrashic literature again, Esav Edom becomes Rome, becomes the church. But at this point, we're talking about Rome. Until it will be, they'll be close to crushing us. Right, like the generation again, right after Bar Kokhba, right? And then he says, They describe some of the terrible things that they did there. And then it says, Remember the Ramban dies in 1270. Now he's in Spain, but he's very aware of what's been going on in France and Germany and across Europe 
during the hundred years, hundred plus years beforehand. They treated us even worse since then. All of this we were able to to uh, to overcome. After this story, it says Yaakov came Shalem. Now, Pshat, that means he came to a town called Salem. But the drush is, he came and he was now complete. Meaning, Yaakov was able to emerge from this, like the phoenix, in full, in full plumage. Yaakov Shalem. What is the Ramban's perspective on this? He's saying this mysterious meeting, which is, as I said, an enigma wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in a puzzle, all inside of a mystery, is exactly that. It's not about Yaakov the man. It's about Yaakov the nation. It's not about Esau the man. It's about Esau the nation. It's not about anything happening right now, because right now Yaakov is bringing gift to Esau, which Esau is, in the end, going to not only accept, but the whole time intended to have a nice reunion with him. It's all fine. But it's to tell you, in future generations, in the middle of the night, in the night of exile, there will be a time when Esau, represented by this guy, is going to almost destroy Yam Yisrael, represented by Yaakov, but Yaakov will survive. And not only will Yaakov survive, he'll have pain from it, he will have uh, a wound from it that's permanent, but he will survive, and as the sun rises, Yaakov will become Yisrael. Yaakov, some suggest, is a name that represents Am Yisrael in their diaspora or their subservient model. And Yisrael is the name that represents the nation in their sovereign and independent model. And that Yaakov becomes Yisrael at the end of the night. He says to him at the end of the night, your name will become Yisrael because now you're able to stand tall. And again, that statement for the future. So what we've seen over the past uh, 35 minutes or so, we took a look through the story itself, asked a few questions along the way, didn't even start answering the questions in shot, but instead used this as an opportunity to survey four of the magnificent Mepharshim that have illuminated our understanding of Torah over the generations, Rashi, Rashbam, Radak, and then Ramban. We did it in chronological order, and we saw four very different approaches to what this was. According to Rashi, this guy who was wrestling with him was actually representing Esau trying to kill Yaakov, and he couldn't do it. According to the Rashbam, it was a Malach Hashem who was keeping Yaakov in place so that he would see that God would save him, and he was punished by being lame for having his lack of faith. According to the Radak, he was sent by God in order to give Yaakov the chizuk, the, the self-esteem and the courage to stand up to Esau, seeing I'm able to stand up to this guy, can stand up to Esau, and again, the, the laming may have been a punishment. In any case, the Radak allowed for the possibility that this whole thing was a vision and was not necessarily happening in real time. You had a videotape, you might see Yaakov asleep as is happening. And the Ramban's take, which is that this entire scene is not about now, it's a vision for the future of what will happen to Am Yisrael. We will encounter Esav, Esav will become very close to hurting us. However, we will emerge victorious and Yaakov will become Yisrael.